Genesis 50, 15 through 26. It's on page 44 of the Bibles in front of you. Genesis 50, 15 through 26. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph, saying, your father gave us this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father, of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Well, we've reached the end of the book of Genesis, which is really in many ways the beginning of the rest of the Bible's story. And if you remember a, a few weeks or months back, I, I gave you four ways that we can read Old Testament narratives like this and try to bridge that gap between their time and place and the time and place where we live. Right? We're not Abraham. We're not Jacob. We're not Joseph. And so we need to figure out how these events that Andrew just read for us, how these events connect to and illuminate and inform and apply to our world. And so you may remember we, we said a few months back that there are four basic ways we can look at a story in the Old Testament like this and responsibly and faithfully apply it to our lives. First, uh, we can look to a story like this for moral instruction. Right, so the Apostle Paul in the uh, New Testament tells the church at Corinth that these things, these stories, were written down in order to serve as an example to us. So we should see good people behaving well and imitate them. We should see bad people behaving badly and avoid uh, doing as they did. So just the kind of most basic level is we can gain moral instruction from these stories. 
Uh, second, we can read these kinds of narratives for a sense of redemptive history. So the narratives that we read here in the Old Testament really serve as the foundation for the rest of the story, the rest of the Bible. So the things that happen here in Genesis will be picked up and repeated and echoed throughout the rest of the Bible, all the way to the end, all the way to the book of Revelation. So we've seen themes picked up, we've seen salvation accomplished in ways that will begin to seem familiar to us as we read through the Old Testament. So the events that we read about in Genesis really, really play out uh, through the Exodus, through Deuteronomy, through Leviticus, and so on through the rest of the Bible. So we read these narratives in order to understand the larger history of God's work of redemption. Third, we read these stories for theology. Uh, in them, we get some sense of what God is like, whether it's through God's actions, say, in destroying Sodom, or in his promises, like the covenant that he makes with Abraham. Uh, in these stories, we learn more and more about the character and the nature of our God. And then finally, we read these Old Testament narratives because they point us forward to the Lord Jesus. This is where we as Christians part company from our Jewish friends as they read the same stories. Uh, Jesus teaches us in the New Testament and the apostles follow in his uh, conviction that the whole point of the Old Testament is him. In these Old Testament stories, we see how God saves his people, how God forgives his people, how God wants his people to relate to him. And all of that points us forward to Jesus. Jesus is the one who makes sense of the Old Testament and particularly the stories like the ones we read about in Genesis. And so what I'd like to do is make that our outline for this morning as we consider the conclusion of Genesis, the, the end of the beginning of the Bible's story. And so let's start with this idea of redemptive history. Where does our passage for this morning stand in relationship to the larger picture of God's plan to save his people? Well, when our passage opens, if you remember, uh, Jacob has just died. So God made a covenant with a man named Abram, later Abraham, and he promised to make his descendants into a great nation. He promised to give to Abraham's descendants the land of Canaan, and he promised that he would bless the whole world through them. That promise we've seen in the book of Genesis was carried on through Abraham's son Isaac and then through Isaac's son Jacob. And now Jacob has died, leaving his sons and their families in Egypt. Uh, we've seen towards the end of Genesis that some of Jacob's sons, in a fit of jealous anger, sold their younger brother Joseph into slavery in Egypt. But Joseph rose up through the ranks. He went from being a slave in Egypt to being the right-hand man to the Pharaoh. God revealed to Joseph that there was going to be a great famine so that Joseph was able to lead Egypt in stocking up food for seven years uh, in order to provide uh, for much of the surrounding area and ultimately even to keep his family alive. So if you look there in verses 22 to 26, we get a, a very quick summary of what happens in the, the seven decades after Jacob's death. There in verse 22, we see that the family of Jacob stayed there in Egypt. And Joseph lived, it says, to be 110 years old. There in verse 23, we're told that Joseph had the joy of seeing the generations after him rising up to take his place, specifically the, the children and the great-grandchildren of his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. 
And that brief word has the effect of closing Genesis out with the needle pointing off into the future. Uh, these were generations that would be raised in Egypt, never having seen the, the homeland that God had promised to this family, the land of Canaan. We see that highlighted for us there in verses 24 to 26. We see Joseph's final words recorded for us. It says there in verse 24, Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. All right, so as Joseph's dying, his mind is on the future, and his mind is on the land that God had promised. Joseph says here, I am about to die. There in verses 24 and 25, he, he tells them something important. He repeats it. He says, God will visit you. And he says there, when God does visit them, it will be to bring you out of the land that is Egypt and into the land that he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So he tells them, God is going to visit you here in Egypt. He's going to bring you out of Egypt and take you back to Canaan. So right there we see this prophecy of what's going to happen in the very next book of the Bible. It's, I'm struck that the book of Genesis really serves as a kind of brilliant first volume in the larger story. Right, so uh, I, I love nothing more than when you get a really good series of fiction novels, right, and, and it creates a world for you, and, and you finish the first one and you realize, oh, I get to go to the second one, right, but the, the worst thing is when you get to the last one, right, you, you cry at the end of the last Harry Potter book because you realize, like, you're done at Hogwarts, right? Genesis, though it's not fiction, really serves as a similar way. It, it, as a story, is brilliant, but it only makes sense as it sets up all the other stories that are to come. Right? We're used to the idea of a self-contained book that can stand alone, but only makes sense if you read it in light of what's coming, and that's what's happening here. Genesis is over, but, but it's clearly pointing us forward to what's about to happen next. Abraham's family has gone from this little insignificant blip to now a massive people. If you read the book of Exodus, you'll see that Jacob's family does in fact grow. And that there comes to power many years later a new pharaoh, one who doesn't know of Joseph. And he enslaves the people of Israel and subjects them to cruel service. And it's at that point that God does in fact do what Joseph said he would do. He does visit them. He visits the family of Israel. In the book of Exodus, we see that he, he raises up Moses. He humbles Pharaoh, and he brings the people of Israel out into the land of Canaan, just as he promised through Joseph's words here. And so you can see the role that our passage for this morning plays in the larger story of God's plan to redeem his people from sin and death. Right, the story of Joseph explains how the people of Israel got to Egypt. It spotlights for us the promise that God would come to his people. That when they were enslaved, when they were hopeless, when they were miserable, as you see they are in the book of Exodus, God would deliver them. He would come to them. And he would bring them out into a land of promise and blessing. And friends, that picture of God's redemption becomes a pattern. It serves as a template, if you will, that God will use much later in the story when he sends a much greater redemption to his people. This idea that God will visit his people in their misery and hopelessness 
It becomes a theme throughout the Old Testament, all the way up into the dawn of the New Testament area. Maybe you remember in Luke chapter 1 how Zechariah, the, the pious priest, the father of John the Baptist, maybe you remember how he responded to the birth of his son. It says in Luke 1 that he prophesied this way, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. See, Zechariah is so happy because he sees in the birth of his son the dawning of God's salvation. His son, John, was, was sent off to be a, a forerunner and a herald of the Messiah, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Zechariah is happy because he sees this salvation coming. And what does it look like? Well, it looks just like what Joseph said it would look like in Genesis 50. It looks like God visiting his people. Right? In the case of Zechariah, he was looking forward to the imminent arrival of the Lord Jesus. Okay, so why does that matter? What difference does it make to our lives that, that Joseph told his brothers that God would visit them in Egypt, and he did, and, and that God, in fact, visited us again in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I think it's helpful for us to notice that Joseph's life closes out here on a note of faith. That's what the author of Hebrews tells us in chapter 11 when he's recounting the examples of great saints, great believers in the Old Testament who lived by faith. He says in Hebrews 11:22, by faith, Joseph at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. My right, friends, it's important for us to notice Joseph's faith that the author of Hebrews is identifying here, it was displayed in his willingness to live his life in light of God's promises. Right, you see there in verses 25 and 26 in our passage, Joseph didn't just pay lip service to the idea that God would visit them, that God would keep his promises. No, but the author of Hebrews highlights for us what Joseph says there at the end of the book of Genesis. His final instructions that his bones should be brought out of Egypt into the land of Canaan, they only make sense if God actually does what he's promised to do. So he tells his brothers there in verse 25, make sure when God visits, and when he brings you out of here into the land of Canaan, I don't want to be left behind, right? I, I don't belong here. I belong in the land of promise. Friends, that's exactly what happened in Exodus chapter 13 as the Israelites are furiously gathering up all their possessions to get out of Egypt. We read that Moses stopped and took the bones of Joseph with him as the people fled. In Joshua chapter 24, we read that the people of Israel, when they went into the land, stopped in Shechem, in the land that Jacob had purchased, and they buried Joseph's bones there. So there in verse 26, the book of Genesis ends on a very real note of anticipation. Je Joseph is embalmed, and he is left in an Egyptian tomb, but he's awaiting God's visitation. And brothers and sisters, I think that's where this story connects with your life and my life. Because what we see in Joseph's life and in his death, and even in the words much later of Zechariah, is that God's people walk through their days, even the very day of their death, with an awareness that we are living in a much bigger story. 
that, that our lives are not discrete, self-contained units, but we are part of a much larger story of what God is doing to bring about his salvation. That, that Joseph was waiting for God to keep his promise. Joseph was waiting for God to visit his people and deliver them. And so are we. We live in a different time and a different place, but friends, we live in the exact same story. We aren't at the end yet. We're still looking forward to all that God has promised to his people. Now, we have the great benefit of being able to look back in a way that, that Joseph could only dream of. Our faith is strengthened when we see that God, in fact, did exactly what Joseph believed he would do. He did visit the sons of Israel in the land of Egypt and deliver them and give them the land of Canaan. We can see how God visited his people yet again in the days of Zechariah, sending his son to die on the cross and to rise from the dead to deliver us from sin and death. We have the advantage of seeing all of those things in the rearview mirror. But there is still road ahead of us. There are still promises for which we wait. There is still faith to be exercised. Because we also anticipate one more final conclusive act of God. One ultimate visitation that will end all of the waiting of all of God's people. That, of course, is the return of the Lord Jesus from heaven. Jesus promised his disciples that though he would leave them, he would return. He would judge the world and he would deliver his people and he would usher in a new world where we live with him, free from sorrow and sin and suffering. All right, we saw that promise even last week in the passage that Cody preached for us. Remember there in Acts chapter 1, verse 11, the angel told the disciples as they saw Jesus go up into heaven, he said, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And so the Christian life in a very real way is a life of waiting. It's a life lived conscious of the fact that we are in a story that has not yet reached its completion. Right? This is how the Apostle Paul instructed the ancient churches. He says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Again, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul writes this. He says, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Christian, what difference does it make in your life in the way that you handle difficulties, in the way that you handle your emotions, your anxieties, your relationships, your suffering, your disappointments, even the approach of your own death as Joseph saw it coming here? What difference does it make when you remember that this is not the end? That, that we have experienced God's salvation in Christ, but we don't yet have everything we're going to have. 
Just like Joseph interpreted the meaning of his life and even gave instructions for his body in light of the certainty that God would keep his promise and visit his people, we also are people who live and love and suffer and, yes, even die with confidence that God will not leave us in Egypt. God will not leave us in the tomb. God will visit us one last time and we will be raised from the dead along with Joseph and Moses and Zechariah and we will on that day receive all that God has promised to us. Remember we have these four ways of applying Old Testament stories to our lives. So we see how this narrative contributes to our sense of redemptive history, of what it is that God's doing, how it is that he's saving his people. Joseph's death gives us a preview of the Exodus, and it shows us that God's people live in hope. Next, I want to combine two ideas. First, how this passage points us to Jesus, and then also what kind of example it is that we see in Joseph's life. So if you'll look back there at verses 15 to 20, you have this cinematic moment in verse 15. So again, remember the scene. Joseph's brothers had many years ago done him dirty. And in response, he had shown them nothing but love and grace and patience. But now when verse 15 opens, Jacob is dead. And so the brothers worry Maybe Joseph is going to drop the act now and get revenge since his father's no longer there. So there in verses 16 and 17, they send a message to Joseph. Listen, before dad died, his last wish was for you to just let bygones be bygones, right? You see the approach. If, if Joseph's wrath was indeed only being restrained by the presence of his father... Maybe the specter of his father's dying wish would be enough to extend Joseph's beneficence indefinitely into the future. Now, it's not clear that Jacob actually said any of the things that that they said that he said here. But it probably did represent his wishes. And so they come to Joseph and they say, look, Dad, look, Dad wanted you to forgive and forget. And there at the end of verse 17, we see Joseph weeps. Maybe he's overcome with emotion in light of his father's death. Maybe it's sadness that his brothers still didn't trust him. Maybe their, their words just dredged up really old, painful memories. But there in verse 19, he, he tells them not to worry. After all, he asks, am I in the place of God? That is to say, vengeance isn't mine. It's not my job. I don't have the right to, to take anything out on you. That's the Lord's business. But I think... If we just left it there, it might seem like Joseph was somehow reluctant or or emotionally distant. But there in verse 21, we we see the posture of his heart towards his brothers. He says there, uh, so do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. You can well imagine how the other brothers had been feeling. After all, it would have been completely understandable if Joseph had decided to get revenge on them. They, they had, in fact, done something terrible. They had sold their innocent younger brother into slavery. And now, in God's providence, they were in his hands. You can imagine how they dreaded this day of reckoning, this day when, when what they did would be on the table, and when what they had done 
would be up for judgment. Jacob is out of the way. Nothing stands between them and this powerful man that they had wronged so greatly. And so you can imagine, as, as tense and as nervous as they were, you can imagine the joy and the relief and the hope for the future that Joseph's words imparted to them. They weren't going to die for their crimes. The one that they had offended was going to protect them and care for them and provide for them. And so again, we see in this little interaction a pattern, a shadow, a type that would be fulfilled many years later in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ in his life and in his death. The story of Joseph here creates a category for us that God's people would be delivered despite their sin by a redeemer who would suffer at their hands but still be willing to extend forgiveness to them. And so when Jesus comes along and the people of God who should have hailed him as their king, when they turn on him and beat him and mock him and hand him over to lawless people to be murdered... Well, how did Jesus treat them? Luke 23, verse 33 tells us that he cried out to his heavenly father, asking that his persecutors might be forgiven for the very things they were doing. Friends, God's salvation comes to us through the suffering and the sacrifice and, yes, the forgiveness of the one that we've sinned against. We all stand before God as the sons of Jacob stood before Joseph. You see, just in the, the way this story is introduced to us, that, that their sin, the evil that they did, was the number one thing on the agenda. It was the most important thing going. It was the elephant in the room. You see that there in verse 15, the, the evil that we did to him. Verse 17, please forgive the transgression of the servants of God. Right? Verse 20, Jacob or Joseph acknowledges, you meant it for evil. Right? There is this massive problem. What are they going to do about what they've done? How is their, their sin against Joseph going to be dealt with? And friends, that's how we stand before God as well. We stand in need of forgiveness for the things we've done, for the things we've failed to do, for the ways we've loved other things besides God, for the ways we've tried to run our own lives as if God were not on his throne. And just like Jacob's sons, just like Joseph's brothers, there's no real good reason why we ought to be forgiven. Notice there that that Jacob's sons don't really have any good explanation for what they did. They don't have any reason why Joseph would forgive. All they can do is sort of throw up this sort of lame, probably fake story about how their dad really wanted them to be forgiven. So friends, just like that, we, we might throw up smoke screens. Right? We, might, we might try to plead some sort of excuse for the way we've lived with God. You know, I tried to do my best. I had a really rough childhood. I know I've done some bad things, but I think I'm better than most people. But friends, like the sons of Jacob, our only hope in the end is that God will be merciful to us, just as Joseph was to his brothers. And the good news, my friends, is that in Jesus, God has promised that he is, that God is utterly willing to forgive and to restore us. 
And that means that if you're not yet a Christian, you can experience God's grace and mercy. Right now, you stand before God just like Joseph's brothers stood before him at the beginning of the passage. With this thing between you. With, with judgment standing against you. But in God's great mercy, you can, you can experience what Jacob's sons experienced. The joy of being forgiven. Not because of anything in you, but because the person forgiving you is merciful. Friend, if you'll turn away from your sin, if you'll acknowledge that you haven't loved and obeyed the Lord the way you should have, if you'll put your trust in Jesus and God's provision for you in his life, in death, and resurrection, and you will be forgiven. And if you are a Christian, take fresh comfort, take new joy this morning in the forgiveness that you've received. Because you find yourself in this story, not in the fear and dread of verse 15, right, where the brothers are afraid that they're going to be punished for what they've done. No, but you find yourself in the joy of verse 21. The recipient of comfort and kindness despite your sin. And so you're free to live like that. You're free to live as if your sin no longer stands between you and the Lord because it doesn't. The Lord Jesus paid it all. The words of Joseph to his brothers are a picture of the words that the Lord speaks to you about your sin. Do not fear. I will provide all that you need. You are safe. You are loved. You are taken care of. And of course, we see in Joseph not just a picture, a shadow of the Lord Jesus, but we see also an example for us to emulate. Joseph teaches us about the forgiveness that God would bring in the Lord Jesus. And in a similar way, those of us who are followers of Christ are called to reflect the image of Christ in the way that we forgive others. But it only makes sense that our experience of being forgiven by God would make us into forgiving people. Right? This logic is all through the New Testament. Jesus teaches his disciples to forgive their brother 70 times 7. He tells a parable about a debtor who was forgiven a massive debt, but then inexplicably went out and, and tried to collect a debt violently from someone who owed him just a few dollars. Right? In Colossians 3, Paul tells the church, forgive one another as the Lord has forgiven you. There's a lot we could say about this topic, and there are certainly things we'd want to nuance. This isn't saying that it's wrong to protect yourself from abuse or to prevent other people from hurting you, but the point is that we ought to look to Joseph as a model of someone who trusted the Lord, who understood that God was the one who would protect him and care for him. He understood that it wasn't given to him to judge or avenge. And so here we see that he was able to forgive a terrible sin with a full heart. And that brings us to our final point this morning. We've seen the history of redemption. We've seen the picture of Christ in our passage. We've seen Joseph's moral example. Let's conclude by looking then at the theology of our passage. What is it that we learn about God uh, in these verses? And this brings us to one of the most famous statements in all the Bible there in verse 20. One that we've been trying so hard throughout these sermons in the book of Genesis not to spoil by sort of jumping into it too quickly. Joseph says there in Genesis 50 verse 20, As for you, you 
meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring, a, bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Friends, this is an extraordinarily significant thing that Joseph says. You meant evil against me. He's speaking, of course, of their selling him into slavery. But he says, God meant that same act for good. Notice he doesn't say, you meant it for evil, but, but God used it for good. Right? He, he's not relegating God to the, the role of a reactor, right? making the best of a bad situation. No, rather, he says that this sinful act that the brothers had committed so many years ago in selling their younger brother into slavery, it, Joseph looks and sees two separate, completely different intentions behind it. It was motivated by the evil intention of the brothers. They wanted to harm and destroy. They are guilty for what they did. But Joseph can see by faith that it was also motivated at a, a much higher level by God himself, who in this act designed to save his people. The brothers wanted to get rid of Joseph, and so they sold him. God wanted to save this family and to provide for much of the wider world, and so he intended that same action. He wanted Joseph to be sold. Now, friends, there's a great mystery here that I'm not going to try to untangle even if I could. Right? It is beyond us to fully comprehend the way that God's will and human interact or intention uh, intersect. What we know from Scripture clearly is that we are responsible for the evil that we do. And we know that God is perfect in every way, utterly holy, never the author of sin, only ever working in wisdom and goodness and righteousness. But we also know that every single thing that comes to pass, even the evil that mankind does, like the evil that Joseph's brothers did, all of the evil that happens in the world serves his sovereign purpose. And so in order to evaluate any event, we have to look at the much bigger context of what God is doing to bring good out of it, to bring salvation to the world. Friends, this is the, the clear, consistent witness of all of Scripture. Uh, scripture never downplays God's sovereign control. We see time and time again, Scripture affirming to us that God's control is complete, that his authority is absolute, that it extends all the way down to the smallest things like hairs on our head and sparrows falling from the sky. If you can find a verse in the Bible that says, yeah, there's this one thing God doesn't have, like by all means let me know, I, it's not in there. It may create questions in our mind how it is that God can be in control of everything, but the Bible is clear that he is and that that's a good thing. So in Isaiah 46, for example, God says this. He says, I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Okay, so what does it mean for him to be God and no one else? Well, he says, declaring the end from the beginning... And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. What does it mean that God is God? 
Well, it means that he knows the end from the beginning. And it means that he accomplishes his sovereign will. He always does what he intends to do. We can trust that God will always accomplish his good purpose because he's the one who declares the end from the beginning. He has a purpose, one that perhaps can't be discerned in this precise moment, but that will certainly be vindicated in the light of eternity. Friends, this is why Joseph can suffer at the hands of his brothers without descending into bitterness. He has taken comfort in the knowledge that this is all part of God's plan. That even though things seem like they've gone off the rails, it's all working together for God's good purpose. Notice how that truth strengthens him. It it undergirds him. It enables him to forgive. But it doesn't make him a robot, does it? You see there that he weeps in verse 17. He's, he's very much engaged in the, in the things that went on. The, the things his brothers have done to him hurt him genuinely. He doesn't, he doesn't turn into a computer with this sort of understanding of God's sovereignty. But this understanding of God's sovereignty allows him to suffer and to forgive. So brothers and sisters, this truth is very precious to us. In order for us to live well, we are going to need a very deep-seated confidence that our God is a God who works all things for good. Because bad things are going to happen. Right? You don't need me to convince you that that's true. You will sin. Your pride, your fear, your limitations are going to bring pain and hardship. The sin of others will have consequence in your life. You will be wronged by the wickedness of other people. You will be attacked by the schemes of the devil. You will be hurt by the selfishness of people you've never met. You will be impacted by the wrongheadedness that takes hold ultimately of every society and culture. This fallen world that we live in will fail us. Wildfires will rage, diseases will spread, bodies will break down, we all will die unless the Lord Jesus returns before that day. You can be 100% sure that your days on this earth will be full of trouble. And so you're left to figure out how you're going to understand those things. Some people choose to walk through life with an unfounded optimism that really amounts to self-deception. Right? If I just don't think about it too much, I can pretend like everything will be okay in the end. Other people just become completely consumed by reality. Uh, they become anxious or hypervigilant, right? seeking to control every aspect of life because there is ultimately no one at the wheel of the universe if I'm not. And so we become hopeless or nihilistic because there's ultimately no purpose to suffering and to trouble. And when when it becomes too much and I can't control it anymore, I have no answers. Most people, I think, just try not to think about it. Maybe right now that's what you're doing, being like, just don't pay attention, don't listen. We're busy. We distract ourselves. We pump in mindless entertainment and unnecessary activity so that we don't have to think about the ways that reality is painful and difficult. But not so with Joseph. 
And not so with you, Christian. Pandemics will break out. Nations will come and go from the world stage. Generations will rise and pass away. But the world is never out of the control of our loving Heavenly Father. Remember what Paul wrote in Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. You see, Paul's saying the same thing that Joseph is saying. God works everything, even evil things, for good. That good is not always immediately obvious to us. It took many years for Joseph to see what God was doing. There were many years where he was rotting in Egyptian jails or, or storing up grain for no obvious purpose. And Joseph didn't understand the bigger picture of what God was doing. It struck me in, in sort of thinking about this that Rachel, Joseph's mother, she never got to see what God was doing. She died unaware of the good that God was doing. We may not always get to a place where we can say, oh, yes, that's why that happened. And we have to say that the good that God is achieving may not always be good as we might want to define it. We might think of good in terms of our health and ease and happiness and comfort. Right? We might think that good means a successful career and a, a healthy family and accommodating people around me. But the good that God promises to us and that Joseph identifies here is the salvation of his people. It's our eternal good. It's you and me as followers of Christ getting safely home to experience all that God has for us in eternity. Remember what we confessed earlier from the Heidelberg Catechism. Remember how, how particular, how granular, how specific is the Lord's control over the world that we live in. We, we said there, he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures. And so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty. Indeed, it says, all things come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Friends, that's true. Not because the Heidelberg Catechism says it, but because the Bible says it. Every single thing that comes into your life comes from the hand of your loving Heavenly Father every time you're stuck in traffic, every time your kids make a bad decision, every sickness, every illness that you experience. It all comes to you, not from a, a God who, who hates you or is indifferent, but from your loving Heavenly Father. It comes to you not from a universe that's impersonal, but from the hand of an all-sovereign, loving God. What difference does that make? How does it help us to know that? Well, again, the catechism, the Heidelberg Catechism speaks to us. It says that we can be patient in adversity. Christian, are you in adversity right now? Can you see how, how understanding that God has a loving and a good purpose in this challenge, can you see how that it makes you patient? It says we can be thankful in prosperity. You realize that everything that you have has come to you as a gift from your Heavenly Father. 
that, that you didn't make the crops grow, you didn't make the sun shine, you didn't make the rain fall. And so anything you have, you ought to be thankful for. It says, with a view to the future, we can have firm confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from his love. As you think about the future, do you feel fear, uncertainty, anxiety? Friends, the Bible tells us how the story ends. If you're in Christ, it ends with you having eternal life in his presence, in a world made new, free from sorrow and sickness and suffering and sin. So Christians, we need to put this into practice. When something bad happens, when adversity comes, whether big or small, we we need to commit it to the Lord. We need to actually be people who trust his providence. He wastes nothing. Everything serves his sovereign purpose to bring eternal life to his people through his son, even if you and I in this life can't discern why or how. God's ways are sometimes inscrutable to us. But his heart of love for us is never a mystery. So we don't need to fear or be anxious because our Heavenly Father is in control. Perhaps the best way for us to press this glorious, life-giving truth down deep into our hearts is to come to the Lord's table. Because it's here at the table that we remember and celebrate the most striking example of this truth in, in all of eternity, past and present and future. There's never been a more wicked act than the crucifixion of the innocent, holy, beautiful Son of God. And there's never been an act more powerfully used by God to accomplish the good and salvation of his people than that very same crucifixion. Maybe you remember what Peter said to the crowds in Jerusalem at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourself know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Do you see how this beautiful truth of Genesis 50 is on display in the cross? You crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. But, Peter says, all of this was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God because God was saving his people. The Lord's table puts on display before us the theology of Genesis 50. A sinless body broken, innocent blood shed, so that you and I might enjoy eternal life with him. If God can use that act of evil for our everlasting good, then Christian, can't we trust him with every detail of our lives? So let's pray Let's come to the table together to celebrate our God's love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice in your love and in your sovereign power. We, your children, take comfort and refuge in the sure knowledge 
that we can trust your goodness in every area of our lives. Help us, we pray, to draw near to the cross of the Lord Jesus so that we might see the price of our forgiveness and so that we might learn to forgive others as well. Holy Spirit, would you give us faith and confidence so that we might walk boldly through all the days of our pilgrimage in this world. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.